0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Moses and Methuselah Weekly Podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis, and each week I sit down with my battle scarred but indomitably optimistic investment manager friend Peter Silon to chew over the latest developments in the markets and debate what they might mean for governments, investors, and taxpayers. Good morning, Peter. We're coming into the what are we are in the third week of July, and it's coming to that point where. People are going to be going off on holidays now that lockdown is eased. People are actually able to do that, which is uh, progress. Some of us thought that might not a happen, uh, which is good news. But it's also a good opportunity to look back at what's happened in the market so far this year. We've talked a lot about that. But it's uh, a half year is, a, is an artificial break in a way. But it's a good opportunity to look back at what uh, what's happened in the market so far this year. Uh, and to look ahead, of course, to what might be coming up. So... Why don't you just give me a quick oversight of what you think uh, has been happened this year and how you explain it, and then we can go on and talk perhaps a little bit more about uh, uh, how that's uh, been reflected in the investment trust sector, which is a uh, popular uh, way in which uh, investors put their money to work.
1: Good morning, Jonathan. I think that's a good plan. We haven't talked about investment trusts for a while, You're right, we should give a little resume of what happened in H1 of 2020, and I would call it the half year of big surprises, of unexpected events, black swans, all of which have caught most people wrong-footed, which of course in health terms is very unfortunate. It's a most unfortunate of all. But then, of course, it also wrong-footed a lot of people financially, who didn't read the market properly, who found it easier to be negative than positive, and thereby probably missed a very big investment opportunity. So we've discussed various reasons, the roles of the Federal Reserve, for example, or the European Central Bank. But your area of expertise, though you wouldn't admit it, but you are one of the big experts in investment trusts. And last time we talked about this, you gave us a sort of top down description of what they are. And you mentioned among other things that there is this thing called either a premium or a discount to the net asset value of the portfolio, they're probably never identical because the price of the investment trust is the result of supply and demand. So when I look at what the stock market did this year, it unexpectedly collapsed and then it unexpectedly rose. And I'm now coming to my question. How have the premiums or the discounts to the net asset value behaved, generally speaking. In other words, when the market collapsed, did this cause a huge discount? And when the market rose again, did it cause the opposite? So that's my first question.
0: Well, Peter, I think the analogy I would use for what happened in the investment trust market is... uh, I dare say you haven't been to uh, Alton Towers, which is a theme park in, in the UK. Uh, it's one where I've taken my children, as everybody has to take their children at some point. And uh, they have a ride called Oblivion, which is a, uh, a ride where they take you up to a great height, strap you into a chair, and then they drop you vertically into a hole in the ground, uh, which causes immense panic and distress amongst the, <laughs> amongst the oldies, though not amongst the young uh, and then you come zooming out on the other side, and it's a very good parallel to what's actually happened, uh, both to the market overall and to uh, investment trust uh, in particular, and the discounts and premium. So what happened when we, at the start of the year, things are all looking pretty rosy, and in fact, um, the average discount on the whole investment trust sector was at 1%. In other words, that the average share price was just 1% below the net asset value, and that has never really ever happened before. Never happened before. It was a sign of the great optimism that people had at that time going into this year, uh, and one of my uh, <clears throat> one of my most uh, favoured commentators in the investment trust sector um, uh, recalled Harold Macmillan's words as Prime Minister: "You've never had it so good," uh, and he wa- and gave a warning that things might not uh, develop that way uh, forever. We couldn't we couldn't keep that up forever, uh, and sure enough, what happened when the virus hit, and we had that huge market sell-off the, uh, the discount the average discount on investment trust plummeted uh, it fell from one percent to 22 percent in the space of just two or three weeks it was very dramatic it was like dropping into a hole in the ground if i may put it that way so that's what happened then and since then we've had a big recovery and the average discount today is around six percent which is about the long-term average for the sector in the last 10 years so we've been all the way down and we come all the way back
1: but the reality, or am I wrong, is that, of course, the, port, the value of the portfolio in itself, in other words, the net asset value, will also have gone down, I don't know, 20%, let's say. And is it then a compounding effect? So you've lost 20% of your net asset value plus another 20% through this discount. So you've, you've lost, I don't know, 40 50%. Is that the right way of looking at it?
0: Uh, well, what it does tend to compound any fall in the market. You're absolutely right. The nature of the investment trust sector is that it will tend to, uh, it will tend to compound uh, any fall that you have because the discounts will tend to widen. However, there is a there is a sort of statistical trap there. Uh, one of the reasons for that is that half a lot of uh, about half the sector is made up of what we call alternative asset investment trusts, uh, and these are things like private equity investment trusts or property investment trusts. Uh, and they have been affected slightly differently the reason i say that is because their net asset values are always uh produced uh with hindsight about three months or even longer after the end of the period so we don't actually find out what the real discount is until we find out what the real net asset value is in those particular trusts if that makes sense so uh it on the surface, yes, you're right. And in reality, in the average equity investment trust, that would be what happened. But across the piece, it's not quite as straightforward as that.
1: Yeah, I understand. Um, it's to do with the liquidity of the underlying investments and so forth. <clears throat> if you look at the, the turnover in daily traded securities, um, everyone knows that when something, let's say, is going down, on a high turnover always going up on a high turnover, it shows that there's a sort of underlying conviction uh, rather than lack of conviction. Now that doesn't count for very long, but it, it's nonetheless, it's a sign. So my question to you is, has there been a lot of turnover of investment trust shares in other words, to show that there was a conviction in that space as well.
0: That's a good question, Peter. And the answer is, uh, as far as I'm aware, the answer is yes to some extent, but not as much as you would expect. And that is partly because uh, of the nature of investment trusts, rather, and the nature of the investment trust shareholder. They tend to be there more for the longer term. That's the whole point of the investment trust structure. It's great advantages that the fund managers don't have to respond by buying and by redeeming or selling uh, issuing units in uh, in an open ended fund you have to do that if the demand is if people take want to take their money back you have to reduce the amount of capital it doesn't that isn't the case with the investment trusts so what tends to happen is that you do get a little bit of panic selling uh, but you also get the market makers the people who are the intermediaries in the market they tend to just cut their prices and uh, you know as a precaution so yeah, that also magnifies the amount of movement you might see in the stated share price, uh, but in terms of turnover, I mean, there has been there was some increase during the panic, uh, but it's been pretty steady, and we're back to normal levels now, for sure.
1: That, that we are back to normal levels now, for sure, of course, speaks volumes. Uh, I can use that word uh, in itself for maybe for the outlook for the second half of the year. We can come back to that. But am I right in assuming that the, the sectors that were most affected in the investment trust space broadly mirrored the market as a whole, or is that an oversimplification? Uh,
0: it is. It's, a, it's, a, it's not an oversimplification, but the, the, the picture is quite uh, nuanced, uh, shall we say. So, I mean, what has been remarkable by this period is that if you look back at the year-to-date performance, there have been some spectacular rises in the investment trust market. I mean, quite spectacular rises in the investment trust market. Uh, and obviously those include anybody who owns... or uh, Specialist technology trusts, for example, have done remarkably well. Scottish Mortgage Trust, which is the largest investment trust uh, of all, apart from 3i, uh, is actually up more than 50% this year, which is quite a remarkable performance, for, given it's the largest investment trust in the in the whole sector. And that's because it's a big holder of Google uh, and the other big Apple and the other big, uh, you know, FANGs that have done so well this year. And so there's other technology specialists that have done well. Uh, I'm looking at a list of the top 20 uh, by size in the investment trust sector. And about, you know, about six of them are are up over the year and others are down, uh, some quite significantly over the year. They're still down. Uh, And if you look at the sectors, it's quite interesting where they are. Uh, I'm sorry to say that right at the bottom of the list uh, are all the UK equity uh, investment trusts, all the ones that invest primarily in the UK um, listed markets, Uh, and they are all down substantially over the year in terms of net asset value. And at the top, we've got technology, uh, Japanese smaller companies, uh, and some others. Uh, UK commercial property, surprisingly, is up there in terms of NAV but that's because their NAVs are, are, are out of date. Uh, we haven't yet heard the full story about how they're going to be affected by the, uh, the impact of the virus, which again has been very uneven across the property sector. So it's very much a mixed bag.
1: If you look at other areas in the financial markets which have fallen to, into periods of stress, like for example, money market funds, or corporate bond funds, or even for a while sovereign bond funds in the US, the authorities were quick to step in and to re-inject liquidity and confidence. So my question really is, do the authorities, whoever they may be, get involved in the investment trust market, or is that left to its own devices and is that left to, say, the market makers to sort it all out?
0: Well, as far as I'm aware, there's no direct interference or in- intervention in the in the investment trust sector. Uh, obviously, the liquidity that is pumped into the market will be going into various directions, uh, and some of those may uh, may reach uh, the investment trust market by a, by an indirect route. But there's no, as far as I'm aware, there is no direct intervention in the investment trust sector.
1: Yeah, I see. So finally, let me ask you this, and then we can maybe talk a little bit about what the rest of the year is going to look like. But have there been any recent new issues of investment trusts, new launches?
0: Right. Good question. Uh, and the answer to that is um, basically no. The market has closed, and that is one consequence of the of the virus and its effect on the market. The there has there is one. Launch one new issue this year that's all only one that which is of course a record low because normally there's there's quite a few and that was a fund which was called nippon active value and that is one of a number of uh, of trusts which are seeking to take advantage of the change in corporate behavior in japan where the government uh, mr abe's government has been very uh, vociferous about the need for japanese companies to, to take to put shareholder interests higher up their list of priorities uh, they tend. Russian, uh, Japanese companies tend to be conservatively have conservative balance sheets, uh, which of course you would like. Uh, but they tend also to uh, to uh, not to have shareholders' interests very much at heart. They don't pay a lot of dividends and so on. But that is now changing, and so there's been a number of investment trusts which have spotted this opportunity, and they they're hoping to um, by applying some pressure on the Japanese companies actually bring forward the pace of change. So that's been the only one. IPO. But there has been a lot of secondary issuance. In other words, issuance of shares by uh, companies already listed, uh, which is another way that investment trusts can in fact grow. Uh, If you're trading at a premium in particular, uh, there is significant opportunities to issue new shares. And a number of trusts have taken advantage of that over the course of this year. So it hasn't all been, uh, uh, there is new supply, if you like, coming to the market.
1: I think that's all such an interesting subject, and, and I know that you are one of the, if not the leading authority in the investment trust market, so it's always very interesting picking your brain a little bit about that. So thank you very much, Johnson, for that. Obviously, we're now thinking about what's going to happen in the rest of the year, and I've noticed something with keen interest recently, which is that although the unfortunate coronavirus new infections seem to be rising again on the rise and I think more or less everywhere and I mean more or less depending on the size of the country and how well the virus problem is being managed which is not in any way uniformly managed but I notice that the, there's a rising anxiety about that about the medical impact the impact on the economy, but at the same time, I've noticed that stock markets have, okay, they haven't continued to rise, but they haven't really been going down. And so it leads me to think two things. First of all, that the, the infection and the virus might be managed in a slightly different way from now on. In other words, regional lockdowns rather than blanket lockdowns and so on and so forth. But also, it could be that the market was caught, or rather investors were caught wrong-footed, as we mentioned earlier, uh, when the market turned and went up again. And so they're not going to let that happen twice. And therefore, if this coincides with the halfway decent earnings season, which we're going through now, it might actually put a flaw on the share prices And if the earnings come through better than expected, then it also puts a ceiling on P.E. ratios and somewhat dilutes the negative argument that markets are too expensive. And that is what I personally expect to see in the months ahead, Jonathan.
0: Yes, well, I think you may well be right about that. Um, My crystal ball is not... Uh, never very clear about the next few months, but I think that seems a very plausible scenario to me. I mean, on the virus, it's quite interesting that the, uh, I think what, you know, the more we go through this, the more refined our understanding of the uh, of the virus and how it behaves becomes. Uh, and you're absolutely right that the uh, the level of infection is spreading very rapidly in a number of countries, uh, particularly in Latin America and uh, in a couple of African countries, which is concerning. Um but in the, in in even in the U.S., where I think the you know the numbers are sound very dramatic, uh, you have to keep that in some kind of context. And there's a lot of diversion between the way these numbers are reported, uh, and the understanding of how bad this uh, uh, pandemic could become. But yes, of course, there's a huge concern about the second wave coming and uh, overwhelming the health sector again in the second half of the year. Um, but for the moment, uh, the economic impact: people are going back to work, and it is being reflected somewhat. Uh, not immediately, obviously, but it's being reflected in, in gauges of economic activity uh, and tracking how many people are moving and traveling and so on. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a good case that if the earnings, as you say, come in uh, reasonably, uh, uh, reasonably in the context of their expectations of investors, then I think we could see, as you say, a period of uh, at least consolidation in the market rather than another dramatic fall.
1: Well, we agree on that. I think we do and of course time will tell, but I noticed another thing which we have been waiting for, you and I, uh, for a while and it's now happening, which is that the dollar is going down and that reliquifies the world system Um, and that is extremely important because if the dollar is too expensive it means there's not enough dollars available internationally and that's bad for the general circulation of goods and services, and so on. So I think that's a thing to watch very closely. And I don't see any, for the moment, any headwinds.
0: Uh, okay. Well, one of my, the direction. one of the interesting things I was reading about this week is that, of course, the whole point about uh, a big bazooka, if what we the, the the phrase that is used to describe what the central banks are doing or what governments are doing in terms of the the scale of their response to this crisis. The whole point about having a big bazooka is that you may not necessarily have to fire it. You have uh, you announce it and you say you're prepared to go to do that, but you don't actually have to do that. And there's been some interesting. I mean, I'm not a. I don't follow this data very closely, but there appears to be some indications that, you know, the amount that actually the central banks are having to put into the or having to of their of their firepower they're actually using is actually quite small because the demand is beginning to to fall. So, in other words, uh, you know, as you you pointed out that the Fed has been uh, making swaps available to other countries and demand for that has been uh, has been at least tailing off, I believe. Uh, and similarly, so maybe the big bazooka has worked. That's that must be the hope, and that certainly suggests that corporate confidence is uh, is coming back anyway.
1: Yes, it, I'm glad you picked that up because I read a very interesting article in the Financial Times about that. It's the it's the bazooka which is loaded but hasn't fired off. Uh, all its ammunition, and some of these facilities, you mentioned the swap lines, are placed at the disposal of users, and then it's up to the users whether they use it or not. And the usage of these facilities, which there are many of various forms, has been surprisingly low. And I find that in itself already very interesting, but I find it twice as interesting as in other circumstances, because... Interest rates have nonetheless remained very low. The price of money has nonetheless remained very low. So it always comes back to the big long argument. And it also comes back to demolish, in my opinion, the argument of those who expect hyperinflation to come back. You can't have hyperinflation if the elements are keeping interest rates. Very low. So I find I find all that to be very interesting. And 2020 is so far has certainly been one of the most interesting six months periods that I've experienced in the, in, in a long time.
0: Yes, I'd have to say though, you'll allow me to say this, Peter, that um, you know the situation here in the UK is perhaps not as good as it is in some other countries. I mean, our market is still down significantly this year as. Uh, as has already been pointed out, um, it is true that the uh, the pound has has sort of firmed a little against the dollar, so it's it's not actually falling despite the the problems that are coming up. Obviously, we do have uh, perhaps our uh, record in managing the virus has not been as good as some others. I think it's fair to say. I don't think many people disagree with that. Though it is interesting, for example, that this week I don't know if you read this, Peter, that the uh, <coughs> the government has discovered that the the figures they're using, which are being used to compare with other other countries, uh, have actually not been calculated on the same basis. So, in other words, they account for anybody who's ever had a positive test for the virus. Okay, is remains and subsequently dies, even if they're run over in a car accident uh, or run down by a car, still remain in the statistics as a as a viral death. So it's probably overstated a little bit the numbers. I mean, people don't think it's as so significant, but it is interesting when it comes to these international comparisons. Combine that with the fact that the average, uh, the average member of the public, uh, and I say this without any hint of condescension, I hope, uh, doesn't necessarily have an understanding of, of the mathematics of all this and the statistical uh, significance of it all. And I think as that comes through, people I think will begin to become more relaxed about the uh, what's happening in the with the virus as they begin to understand that it is actually, the rate is still declining. The rate of deaths is declining and the rate of overall infection is about, uh, it, well, it's well under uh, one in 40,000 of a chance of getting it in the UK. So I think that's a positive too. Uh, and hopefully that will come through over the next uh, few months. But I mean, countries like the UK, we've got Brexit. Uh, we have trouble getting people back to work. We have a massive amount of funding of, of, uh, of guilts to do. Uh, It's all going to be, uh, there be taxes going to have to go up uh, and so on. So there are a number of issues that have to be managed from here. So it's not all going to be plain sailing, I'm afraid.
1: You're quite right. It's certainly not going to be plain sailing. And it's not really helped because what you've just said about statistics and how it, it may well mean that the underlying overall virus situation is not as dramatic as the press would like to show it as being. And so I think that the press has to be as responsible as it can and produce real news rather than fake news, I think. They have their role to play as well. Otherwise, the public will be misinformed. I also think that the public should be a little bit more responsible in terms of the things like wearing face masks and social distancing. I go out, and when I go out, I see people who are still a bit too cavalier with these elementary precautions. And I think that's very important that that be maintained. There opinion. was a
0: couple of points I would make. Number one, I think we talked about investment trusts earlier. Well, there was a a, a call with one of the biotech investment trust specialists in uh, this week. Uh, and that was interesting because they obviously, they invest in 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 uh, in a lot of biotech companies and they're very close to what's going on, as close as anybody can be. And the manager there was saying, and I don't think you could say he was doing it just to talk his book, he was saying he has become extremely confident there will be a vaccine developed that is effective. Uh, There are, as you know, 150 different companies uh, uh, trying to produce one, but he said from what he's hearing and what he's seeing that he's very confident that a vaccine will come uh, within the next uh, year to 18 months. So I think that was, if that's true, and of course he may not be right, but uh, he's certainly better qualified to judge that than I am, uh, that would be uh, very significant. And the second thing, though, I thought was very interesting. There was an article uh, by a well-known columnist over here called Matthew Parrish, who's been in Spain, and he said uh, his experience over there was very interesting about face masks. As you know, there's a lot of controversy about whether face masks do actually do any good. And he said what happens, what appears to be happening in Spain, and this is only anecdotal evidence, of course, is that when people go out in the streets, they all wear their face masks walking down the street. But as soon as they get to a bar or a restaurant or sit down, they just take them off. And that's the point where they should be putting them on rather than taking them off. So in other words, his interpretation was, this is just people saying, look at me, I'm doing my best, you know, to <laughs> I'm making a show of doing, doing what's needed to control the virus. But actually when it comes to the, comes to the crunch, you know, the, the pleasure of chatting and talking to people in a bar or restaurant is, uh, remains the same. So that, uh, that's an interesting behavioural reflection of what you were just been saying.
1: Yes, and I think it applies particularly to the younger generation who rightly or wrongly believe that they're less vulnerable and therefore they don't think of they don't think of the risks as much as as Moses or Methuselah would think of the risks because we are more vulnerable. I think there's an element of that as well. I, I had the same experiences that Matthew Paris had. You see it here as well. But then on the other hand, if you go into a restaurant to have lunch, you've got to take your mask off sooner or later. Or... <laughs>
0: <laughs> we haven't yet got to the point where we all have tubes, which are, we are fed by in restaurants. That would be, uh, that would be very unpleasant. <laughs> I can't see that happening at yeah, any time. So I think it's, well, I don't know. It's a mixed picture, as we say. I think, um, I mean, one of the interesting questions is, uh, you know, the longer-term impact of this we've mentioned before. But, you know, looking, again, I'm just taking some examples from the investment trust sector because they just have to be ones I'm familiar with. You know, you look at these property companies, uh, diversified property companies that invest in, you know, a whole range of different types of property. So shops, retail, offices, and industrial uh, uh, property. Uh, and they've had obviously very diverse experience so far. So the ones who've got a significant portion of retail, they've all been, they've had to cut or suspend their dividends. Uh, and we're still waiting to see how badly their net asset values will be will be determined, uh, will be affected rather, because they are primarily valued on a yield basis. So it's quite difficult for the valuers to to say what they're worth if they're not paying a dividend. And on the other hand, you've got other types of property company who are, maintaining their dividends in full collecting all their rent and so of course ironically they're the ones who are mostly dealing with the government which of course can always pay uh, whereas uh, private sector uh, tenants can't always pay so there's a wide divergence of uh, of experience there but again we do seem to be seeing some encouraging signs in terms of the reports that they're making about the ability to collect rent and they are improving um they are improving uh, Uh, a little bit anyway, on what uh, people's worst fears. So that may be an interesting development, but longer term, of course, I'm just as interested in what happens to the office market, you know, is it going to be a fundamental change in the way that people uh, work, how many people work from home and so on. Uh, And I think that's something we just don't have any any idea about at the moment.
1: Yes. or the propensity of workers to go back to the office, instead of saying, well, actually, I'm quite comfortable here. I think I'll stay at home. And whether that could cause any problems going down the line, whether, in, whether problems relating to governance, for example, not to mention the obvious problems relating to the real estate market, as you were just saying. But whichever way you twist and turn this whole coronavirus, I think it is definitely a game changer a very big game changer across yes. the across the role of all the economic agents if you like that make up um, a country's well-being. So we have to look at that very closely and it's quite difficult to make predictions. You can make big predictions but the reality always catches up, sneaks up on you. So I, I think it's just too early to tell. Um, we, you and I, we tend to talk more about events in the financial markets than events in society, for example. And what's been so striking this year is the huge dichotomy between the general well-being of people, the man in the street or families on the one hand, and what happened in the financial markets on the other hand, So if you didn't know what happened in the real world to the man in the street in the last six months and you only had the possibility of looking at your screens, you would think that nothing in particular has happened. Looking at how everything is, well, not in the UK, I know, but in in many other parts, the share prices have all rallied back and the bond yields have stayed low and so on. It's, It's a very bizarre background, I must say.
0: It is indeed, and I think that's probably where we should leave it this week, Peter. But uh, you're absolutely right, a bizarre background. It's The stock market has really got uh, only a tangential relationship to what the experience of the average uh, man or woman in the street is. So, But that's the strength and the weakness of it, I would say. Uh, and for those of us who do follow it, it's uh, it's uh, it's something we've got used to living with, uh, perhaps unlike the virus. Anyway, Peter, it'd be a very good conversation as always. Uh, I look forward to carrying on next week uh, and we'll have a different topic I dare say to talk about then
1: Thank you very much I look forward to that Jonathan and have a nice weekend meanwhile
0: I will indeed You have been listening to the Moses and Methuselah weekly podcast hosted by Jonathan Davis and
1: Peter Silen These podcasts are independently edited and produced and available for distribution every Saturday. You can subscribe to them on most leading podcast channels or by signing up on the Moneymakers or Eminem podcast website. Please note that these podcasts are provided for information and background only and should not be regarded as constituting professional investment advice.